electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. We continue with the big story of the day. Elon Musk, unable to hit the edit button. Uh, He's going to end up, it looks like, getting Twitter at 54.20 a share despite his best efforts. Shares halted pending official news, but jumping as much as 15% earlier. We will bring you all the latest. Plus, stocks rallying on hopes the Fed is going to pivot. Yeah, again. But is it premature? One of our guests is bullish overall, but says be cautious with your cash right now. He tells us why and what he's buying. And the first big test for Section 230. Look at the case in front of the Supreme Court that could change everything for the social media giants and apparently Elon Musk. But we begin with today's markets and Dom Chu with the numbers. So, John, it's like a continuation of tech check at this point because it is technology that's been at the center of so much of the downside and upside volatility. Uh, Case in point today. After a quote-unquote underperforming day yesterday, yeah, believe it or not, the Nasdaq did underperform the other indices yesterday. We're up 3% right now, roughly, for the composite index, 11,130. The S&P 500, 3775, almost another 100-point gain here. It was there one point earlier, 2.5% gains there, similar percentage move for the Dow Industrials. And now for the S&P 500 at 3775, it now brings this two-day rally to north of 5% in just two days. So, Is this a bottoming in place? That's a big debate happening right now on Wall Street. One of the things that's driving the action, John mentioned before, this idea of valuations, multiples, what's driving technology. Interest rates are a part of that story. Believe it or not, we have now ticked slightly higher off the session lows for the 10-year Treasury note yield, which currently sits just a hair below 3.62%. But remember, just in the last couple of weeks, we saw north of 4%. So we're 40 basis points, 0.4% below where we were just a little while back. So is this interest rate story part of the reason why markets are a little bit more bullish? But keep in mind the context, right? We've come a long way higher in terms of interest rates overall. And then check out some of these names. There are roughly 40 plus stocks in the S&P 500 that are mega caps. We'll call that a 100 billion market cap or higher that have now rallied by at least 5% in two days. So market beating mega cap names among them. Amazon.com, Salesforce, and Advanced Micro Devices, each of these three names among the 40-some that have gained at least 5%. John, these three technology and tech-adjacent names have rallied roughly 9% in two days, but I'll show you the charts here. Remember, it's been a lot of downside moves. We'll see whether or not it's bottom fishing or just short covering. I'll send things back over to you. Don, thank you. Uh, And now we're going to get back to the story of the afternoon. Twitter shares still halted. Pending news that Elon Musk will proceed with the deal that he didn't want to do to buy Twitter at 54.20 a share. But he wanted it before he didn't want it. David Faber, you've got the details. Have we ever seen a case of buyer's remorse like this? No, we've never seen anything quite like this, period, in, at least in the 30-plus years that I've been covering mergers and acquisitions, or maybe even longer, 35. There's sort of nothing like it. But when you're dealing with Musk, as you well know, John, well, you just got to throw out history because it's always going to be weird. Um, here's what we can tell you at this moment. The stock's halted, by the way. News pending. 
Um, last night, uh, sources are telling me, a letter was sent from uh, Mr. Musk in which he basically uh, sent a letter to the board of Twitter and to the court saying, I'm going to buy the company for 54.20. You can stop the litigation now and uh, I will move forward with our original deal to buy the company for 54.20. What a deal that was uh, uh, announced back, what was it, April 25th, I think, is when Twitter agreed to, uh, to that number. Uh, this after, if you recall, and you were sort of alluding to it, John, as he built up his position in it, then he was uh, going to be on the board, then he decided not to be on the board, they put in a poison pill, then they reached an agreement with him, and then not soon after, he got buyer's remorse, started tweeting, there were some poop emojis, and then finally, come June, we got to the point where the two sides started to basically realize, or at least Twitter did, that we're going to have to sue this guy at some point. It took a while. We were supposed to be in Delaware court beginning on the 17th of this month to figure it all out. Things had not been going Musk's way, though, thus far in court, at least. Uh, and from what I hear, a number of the depositions that have taken place. He's supposed to be deposed this week, John. Um, unclear what was going to happen during that deposition or whether it's directly connected to what appears to be his decision to buy the company for 5420 but it's not hard to at least make a connection between the timing of those two uh, events that said we're still waiting we're waiting for the letter itself to be released either to see the light of day in the court or for mr musk or twitter to release the letter and we are waiting for news from twitter right now that news not likely to be, we're done, it's all over, we've agreed, we're closing on this date. More likely to be what I'm sharing, which is we received this letter from Mr. Musk and we're waiting for the court to sort of sign off on things to make sure that if we drop the litigation, he will therefore move forward with the deal. Um, and as I've been indicating earlier in early reporting, John, I mean, he could close this thing very quickly. Um, at the least 15 days, or at the most, I should say, because that's the marketing period Morgan Stanley has in the contract that it's allowed if it wants to exercise that. But if they were to waive that, they've gotten all the other approvals, regulatory, shareholders. So, you know, it could be a matter of days hmm. uh, if Morgan Stanley waives that marketing period. David, we, we don't have the final box score on this situation. Uh, that's an important caveat here. Uh, strange things can and probably will still happen, yet Twitter's management and its board has undergone some withering criticism over the years, but it appears to me that if this ends the way it right now appears that it will, Twitter's board performed masterfully throughout the past few months in this saga because people were saying, oh, let him out of the deal. You can't make him buy a company that he doesn't want to buy. Um, Brett Taylor, co-CEO of Salesforce, who's now chair of that board, stuck to his guns, and apparently the way they negotiated this has held up to the degree where the richest man in the world doesn't want to fight in court. That would seem to be the case, and I, and I agree with you. Uh, the board did a good job for its shareholders in signing up a deal at 5420, which, as you and I both know, is far above even uh, far above any level this stock would see if it were trading simply on fundamentals. Um, and they have been steadfast, and I've reported on this, steadfast in their belief that under the contract there was nothing that Mr. Musk was going to be able to prove that would let him exit the deal because, remember, he needed to prove fraud and that that fraud constituted a material adverse effect or change that allowed him to exit the deal. Um, given the arguments that have been made thus far in court and the back and forth and things we'd be able to see and hear during 
uh, open uh, court hearings. Um, it seemed clear to many people and many observers that Mr. Musk's side was losing this case, John. But that doesn't mean you don't, you know, what would have happened inside the courtroom, who knows. Uh, but it appears that perhaps because he didn't want to be deposed, perhaps because he simply knew he had a losing case at this point, hmm. that he is now prepared not even to settle, because many of us have been talking about the possibility of settlement. Many market participants have ex been expecting prior to the beginning of the trial, you might get a settlement. This is not a settlement. <laughs> this is just him saying, all right, 5420 it is. Now, uh, 33 billion or 31 plus billion of my own money. Uh, you know, he's raised some money from investors like Larry Ellison as well. So I'll, I'll cut that down a bit. But 25 billion of my own money, 7 billion of theirs, and then 13 billion of debt from Morgan Stanley. And we're done. Thanks for your time. Now, hold on to the desk for a minute, because I'm going to try to connect dots between Mark Zuckerberg, Kim Kardashian, and Elon Musk. Okay? And, and my question connecting all of those is this. There have been people who have tried to hold Mark Zuckerberg personally liable for things that Facebook has done policy-wise. And we've just seen over the past couple of days, several hours, that Kim Kardashian has gotten into some trouble with regulators over what she has posted about cryptocurrency on Instagram. And so, given that Elon Musk himself is a central figure, not just in this Twitter saga, but in Tesla, in SpaceX, in other ventures, does owning Twitter open Elon Musk up to personal liability that shareholders should think about from here? Maybe it's not just about this transaction and how much he has available funds-wise, but is this sort of a new era for Musk-connected companies? I think it has to be. You have to consider that it will be. I mean, John, you know, in that brief period where he'd agreed to the deal and didn't seem to have remorse about paying the price, we talked a lot about this, imagining Twitter under Musk, what that would mean in any variety of ways. But certainly what you're raising is something that people have to be at the very least aware of um, when it comes to Mr. Musk. Now, Tesla shares, I, I think, may have weakened a bit since we begin relaying this news. That said, remember, he has largely sold the stock needed to finance or pay for his portion of the equity that he's stepping up for. Um, so it wouldn't appear that there's going to have to be near-term pressure, um, although I want to go back and check my notes and, and math and make sure and remember all the different sales that he made. John, you may have a better memory of it than I do. Um, but you're right. It's going to be a new era for Twitter, and it's going to be a new era for Musk. Uh, who was using Twitter's platform vigorously last night, as we know, weighing in with his thoughts about Russia and Ukraine, apparently at the same time that he was sending letters to the court and to Twitter's board saying, all right, I'll buy you for 54.20 as we agreed to. The man doesn't uh, appear to sleep much. Oh, or shy away from starting fights with anyone, whether it be board members of potential companies that he wants to acquire or doesn't, or leaders of countries at war. David Faber. Thank you. Let's bring in Nilay Patel, editor-in-chief at The Verge, a CNBC contributor. <laughs> Nilay, um, there were lots of people who were saying, oh, Elon Musk is a genius. He's going to figure this out. Is this him figuring it out? I don't, I don't know. You know what I'm really confused about is there's no price concession here, right? He, he's not saying, oh, okay, 52 a share. Like, give, give me something. Price in the risk of maybe going to trial and losing. He's just caving at 5420. 
So I'm waiting to see if there's another concession that he's asking for to justify that price. It is bonkers to me that he hasn't proposed any 54 flat, giving me a 20 cent discount on the share price just to price in the risk of the trial. That's that's crazy to me. It is Musk, as David said. You can never really know what's going on in his brain. Uh, but that, to me, is just the weirdest part of this. It's not a settlement offer. It's just caving. And we ha- we did see last week, you know, his bot argument was just falling apart left and right. He did not have the numbers. He did not have the data to back it up. But why do all this work to try to get out of it if you're not even going to try to get a discount? Well, since this deal first got floated, since Elon Musk first proposed it, the, the stock market has changed dramatically. The global economy has changed dramatically. The geopolitical reality has changed dramatically. Um, and now we're getting ready to head into a very serious election cycle, both midterms coming in just a couple weeks and then the big general election cycle. Twitter often plays big into that. If Elon Musk ends up with it, which he could within days, how does that change the landscape? Yeah, I think we're about to to learn uh, in a very public way from Elon himself uh, that content moderation and speech regulation is a lot more complicated, especially when all the politicians are looking at you uh, than he makes it seem on Twitter. I'm just, you know, the Texas social media law is almost impossible for platforms to comply with. If it goes into effect I'm not sure that these platforms can actually operate in Texas. Uh, Just all the reporting about it so far, all the statements from the platforms say, okay, if you want viewpoint neutral uh, content moderation, we're going to have to let horrible things go online that are otherwise illegal, and we won't be able to moderate them. How is Elon going to deal with that? That is a full-on distraction that might have to result in platforms not operating in the state of Texas. That is a big deal because Tesla has a huge investment in in Texas. He lives in Texas. That's just the United States. That's not China or Russia or Germany or any of the other markets that he wants to play in. Okay. And so finally then, uh, Elon Musk has seen Tesla stock hold up pretty well during all of this stock market turmoil. But he apparently, you know, his own net worth, he's taking a hit here buying this asset that uh, its prospects aren't nearly what they appeared to be when he first made the offer uh, to buy. What is the risk that you see? Is there any to Elon Musk's other uh, assets, the other ventures that he's leading that a lot of other investors have stakes in, where if he's personally liable for what happens uh, on a social media platform, perhaps he needs to raise some more cash. He's spending his emergency fund here on Twitter. Yeah, I I think the personal liability issue is always going to be really complicated, right? And it's complicated by the regulatory structures around the world. But what is not complicated is now there's one guy to pressure who is definitely in charge. And Twitter has actually done a pretty good job at deflecting that pressure away from Dorsey himself, away from Parag himself, away from even uh, Vidya herself, right? They've said, we have a team, we have all these processes in place, you have to deflect the pressure. Facebook built an entire Supreme Court apparatus to deflect the pressure away from Mark Zuckerberg because it's too much for one person to take. If you have one singular person that the Chinese government can pressure to moderate Twitter in a certain way in order for Tesla's market size to grow, or for the German government, which also Tesla wants to compete in Germany in a big way, Germany has very different kinds of speech laws. Elon being in a fight with the German government over what is allowed and not allowed on Twitter has a direct impact on what the German government might be able to do to Tesla. And that's in the West. 
So I think this is a real danger moment for all of Elon's other companies because Twitter is very visible and the pressure they can place on the other companies to get what they want out of Twitter is real. Yeah. Well, we, we like to, uh, not that we like to, but we often end up using that bad baseball uh, and metaphor about how it's early innings for various technologies. Still seems to be early innings for this story of Elon Musk, Twitter, and social media. Neelai Patel, thank you. And we will be keeping an eye on this Twitter story, but let's get back to the markets, which are soaring. Stock staging another big rally today. Our next guest says the outlook is bright for long-term investors. You just need to be careful with your capital in the near term. No billion-dollar buys, I guess, unlike Elon Musk. Let's bring in Mark Avalone, the president of Potomac Wealth Advisors. Mark, um, how much attention should investors pay to this rally today? Is it about the rally and kind of risk on? Is it about, you know, the, the, the bear market sort of fade that we've seen over the last couple of weeks? What does discipline and, and smart investing look like here? Well, it looks like you, you take what you can in a bear market like this, but don't get over out over your skis and think happy days are here again and it's straight up. I think this is a bear market rally. It, it's reassuring. One thing I like to see is the, the, the NASDAQ, the triple Qs are up today nicely, even though Tesla has struggled for two days. And that's one of the biggest components there. So you look for positives in, in this uptrend. But to think that the structural problems of higher inflation, a, an aggressive Fed and, and the risk of earnings not hitting their target is behind us, I think is a bit premature. Mark, the argument not too long ago was, oh, my goodness, if you're in cash, then, you know, that, that the value of that is just crumbling around you. You got to put it to work in stocks. And yet, if you had sat on your cash, suddenly you can buy a lot more stocks. So just strategically, not saying that people should be all one way or all the other. What is a smart cash strategy for the retail investor right now? Well, I get that a lot. And for short-term money, cash was always appropriate and still is. It's a question of how far out do you want to go? And with the two-year treasury in the 4% range, if that satisfies your risk reward and your target rate of return, there's nothing wrong with folding some nice treasuries into an overall diversified mix. You could, however, have an opportunity cost. If this market takes off and you're still in those short-term treasuries, then you're going to miss out. And when stocks turn, they turn fast. That's the real risk of being in treasuries. It's not the, the treasury itself, it's the opportunity cost if and when this stock market turns. All right, let's get your picks here. I believe you like uh, Chubb, MetLife, Prudential on the value side and uh, on the growth side, Microsoft and Apple still? Well, on the, on the value side, we like broader financials, but because there is a risk of a recession and we think it's more of a, a modest one if we have one, we think insurers have less credit risk than banks. They're selling at higher multiples, but they have very strong dividends. And internally, insurers have done a lot with their product lines to deliver uh, investor returns. And we think the higher yields and the term structure of interest rates is really going to benefit them, especially with the bond carnage, hopefully in the rearview mirror. Yeah. Mega cap tech is something we've liked all along. We think they're leaders, they're market share dominant, ca strong cash flow, ca strong balance sheets. And if you're selective in that space, you pick the winners, you avoid names of lower quality on the tech side. And we think longer term investors will be rewarded. OK, Mark, thank you. Mark Avalon. Good to be here.
Meantime, oil prices higher ahead of tomorrow's OPEC Plus meeting, where they are expected to discuss supply cuts. For more on that, let's go to OPEC headquarters in Vienna, Austria, where leaders are preparing for the first in-person meeting in more than two years. Brian Sullivan's live there, where OPEC again is headquartered. Brian, give us a setup. Yeah, John, listen, we don't have Twitter, but we do have trillions of dollars of GDP potentially at risk tomorrow if OPEC goes ahead and the report suggests cuts output by anywhere from 500,000 barrels a day to some new headlines of up to 2 million barrels a day. I mean, the analyst notes and the estimates have been all over the map. We're talking about hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars potentially at risk here, depending on what happens. The meeting in person, they called it suddenly this weekend. We thought it was going to be virtual. Suddenly they said, do it in person. Everybody booked a flight, got over here to Vienna. We expect something big. It may not just be oil. I'll get to that in just a second. So that meeting heading tomorrow at the headquarters. Also, if they do the cut, John, what does the United States do? What is the U.S. reaction going to be? I can personally tell you that the White House is not happy with this meeting or the expected cut as well. We've already seen some Congress people come out and say, oh, maybe we need to cut off arms sales to Saudi Arabia. They would view this as being sort of driven by Saudi Arabia, although the report suggests Russia may be more to blame if indeed we get that. And so what will the U.S. reaction be? And speaking of Russia, what is the Russia factor? We are not 100% sure that the Russian delegation, led by Alexander Novak, who, by the way, is also deputy prime minister, if they're actually going to be here in Vienna. Still kind of an open-ended question. The expectation is they will be, but wouldn't that be kind of an odd geopolitical scene? We're here in Vienna, Austria. Europe's suffering an energy crisis. Prices for everybody are up. A lot of people blame Russia, and yet here into town comes the Russian delegation. So a lot of questions there. There's also talk that Saudi Arabia, OPEC, and Russia, OPEC Plus, may extend what they call, John, their declaration of cooperation, a deal they made back in 2016, sort of further tying Russia and OPEC together. Production cuts, U.S. reaction, higher oil prices, global geopolitics. It's all happening. Vienna, Austria, tomorrow, in person at the OPEC headquarters. Brian, let, let me focus in on Europe as a way of looking at what's coming for the global economy. So we just are starting Q4 this week. Russia has been using energy supply uh, as a strategic lever in its efforts to try to get the West to back off and let it have its way in Ukraine. And now what's being discussed at OPEC is energy supply and it's fall. So winter's right around the corner. How does that factor in to the unstable, tenuous situation that uh, Europe's economy finds itself in and the potential ripple effects in Q4 and beyond. Well, it just creates kind of an odd geopolitical scene like I was getting into, John. Again, you know, you talk to anybody here. We haven't been here very long, but we talked to the hotel people, talked to Roy over here who's working with us. We talked to cab drivers. Everybody says, oh, my energy, my heating bills, either in the summer and in the winter, they've doubled or more than double. I mean, these are working class folks. The government's had to issue a 500 euro per person sort of stipend so some of the people on the lower income scale can just afford to heat their homes. We chatted with somebody today from Germany, a tourist around here, who said their landlord had cut off their heat and basically said, put on a sweater because we can't afford to heat the home. Now we're talking, of course, about the price of oil. If we get this big sizable cut, 500,000 to 2 million barrels a day, that the price of oil might be defended, meaning go up. And of course, it's not just oil. It is natural gas as well. Thankfully, 
Energy prices have come down a little bit. If you look at sort of the Dutch TTF spot market, we're at 164 euro per megawatt hour today. That is well off the highs, but still well above where it was. This is not, John, a monthly story. This is going to play out if it continues, unless something changes with the war, with Vladimir Putin, if you know what I'm talking about, unless something dramatic changes. This will play out for a year. OPEC coming to town and possibly doing a major oil production cut. I want to leave it with this. If we get a million barrels a day, it doesn't mean a million barrels a day are going to come off the market. Many countries are not meeting their quota already. So maybe half to 60% of that would actually come off. The question will be, does the U.S. release more from the SPR? And can U.S. producers produce more to make up for any gap? The first question, maybe. Second question, unlikely. It's going to be a busy day at OPEC uh, HQ, probably a lot of security. It's going to be a kind of a weird meeting given there's some COVID protocols. Uh, could be a big day tomorrow. We're going to be here for it all day long, morning to night. Yeah, either way, possibly European governments subsidizing both OPEC company profits, country profits, I should say, mm-hmm. and the war in Ukraine. Brian Sullivan, thank you. Coming up, the Supreme Court taking a controversial issue in the tech world. Section 230, should social media companies have legal immunity from the content posted by their users or even their owners? We'll debate. But first, a deep dive into the metaverse. Is the retail industry being fashion forward by betting on the digital space or should they stick to shopping in the real world? And a quick check on Twitter. That stock still halted as our David Faber reports that Elon Musk is proposing going through with the deal after all at its original 54.20 price. The exchange is back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Online shopping might be taking a whole new form as retailers look to move their brands into the metaverse. Big names like Gucci, Gap, Balenciaga, and Nike have all started offering VR shopping experiences on platforms like Roblox and Fortnite. My next guest says it could turn into a $1.7 billion industry in less than 10 years. Retailers want to be a part of it. Joining us now is Dana Telsey. She is CEO and Chief Research Officer at Telsey Advisory Group. Dana, welcome. Uh, I, I got to start off asking, we've seen a big drop in interest in and the value of metaverse real estate, uh, interest in NFTs. What has to happen in metaverse shopping so it doesn't suffer the same fate? 
I think one of the elements of metaverse shopping, and first of all, thank you very much for for having me, is the amount of dollars that brands and retailers are contributing to the platform. I think everyone wants a piece of the Gen Z and millennial consumer who account for 43% of the population. And I think we're only going to see more of these brands devote more dollars. It's very much in the early phase, but wherever consumer conversion is happening, they want to be there. Do there need to be connections to the real world and physical goods? I mean, my kids, they spend time in Minecraft. They don't really do Roblox and they do Fortnite and whatnot. But they, they actually have developed buyer's remorse over the years saying, I can't believe I spent that much on V-Bucks. Now they want stuff like clothes, right? So um, will smart retailers make those connections or is the future in making sure that, you know, people feel like there's value in digital goods alone? I think that the interoperability of having a physical store and a metaverse presence, I don't think it is either or. I think it's going to be both. And I think the best brands out there are going to be able to adopt that connectivity so that you do have a physical footprint that also uses social media and the metaverse as almost advertisement tools in order to gain awareness. Building your block of customers is key to the metaverse in the future and key to the growth of brands. Here's another thing that I wonder about, and it has to do with costs. Is the future a a metaverse or is it a multiverse? In other words, is there gonna be one environment where these brands can focus on building one beautiful version of that bag or that shoe and it transfers across Roblox and other games? Or are you gonna have to figure out which game to make assets for? And are you gonna have to have engineers and artists that are doing customizations for all these platforms? Because that's a big cost issue, isn't it? That would be a huge cost issue. I think it's a multiverse. I like the way you frame that rather than just a metaverse. I think all of the players, and we've seen it from Estee Lauder, from Gucci and many of the others, are first experimenting to see what works. And I think given that we're in the first iteration, we're gonna see connectivity in that multiverse come to the forefront over the next few years. So who benefits now, whether it's tool makers, whether it's you know, marketing focused companies, who are these retailers gonna have to go to at this stage to prepare for whatever the future holds? I think frankly, when you look at who retailers are hiring and who brands are hiring, it basically is marketing technology experts. That I think is what's going to differentiate because also it's not only differentiating for the metaverse, but it basically is holistically bringing your brand to the forefront. It can't be either or, it's got to be both in this new world of consumer conversion that is called the metaverse or the multiverse. All right, we'll see if Applovin and Unity and Adobe and the likes get a piece of that money. Dana Telsey, thank you. Thank you. Still ahead, rates are on the rise. Despite the outsized moves this week, stocks are still well in the red overall, and that's having a big impact on luxury real estate, not just in the metaverse. We're going to have more on real universe luxury real estate coming up when the exchange comes back. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to the exchange markets right now. Still high as a kite, though, off of their highest heights. The Dow's high 
was around 818. Now it's at about 650. Let's get another check on shares of Twitter. The stock surged, as sources told CNBC. Elon Musk is proposing to close the deal to buy the company. After all, at the original price of 54.20 a share, that stock still halted with news pending. We continue to watch uh, for when that news comes across. But for now, to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update with, I presume, other news. Uh, we got other news, John. Thanks very much. Uh, delays in unlocking gates contributed to the disaster at an Indonesian soccer stadium where at least 131 people died. This according to Indonesia's National Soccer Association. Police, however, insist the gates were open but were too narrow to accommodate the crush of people trying to escape, trying to escape, among other things, tear gas fired by those police. Back home in Central Florida, a 21-year sheriff's deputy was fatally shot while trying to serve an arrest warrant. The person being served failed to appear in court to face meth charges. Rows of officers saluted as the deputy's body was taken from a hospital to the medical examiner's office. And at the Supreme Court, conservatives gave little indication of their views on a key voting rights case from Alabama. At issue is a Republican-drawn electoral map that critics say concentrated black voters into a single district. Liberal Justice Elena Kagan said a decision to strike down the map was, quote, kind of a slam dunk under the court's precedent. And tonight on the news with Shep Smith, a blockbuster abortion allegation against Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker of Georgia. Walker says it's a big lie. Walker's son says his father is the liar. We'll sort it out tonight at 7 Eastern. Meantime, John, back to you. Tyler, thank you. Coming up, the Supreme Court taking up Section 230 and the outcome could have big implications for tech. A look at what's at stake next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's talk about Section 230. Been on the books for 25 years, but with the proliferation of social media and of misinformation, it has been seen as increasingly controversial. The rule basically protects websites and services from lawsuits stemming from user or third-party content. Essentially, if a person says something bad about you on social media, you can sue the person who wrote the post, but not the site that posted it. Well, the Supreme Court has decided it's time to look at just how fair that is. Eamon Javers has the details. Eamon? Hey, John, this case is all about 23-year-old Noemi Gonzalez. She was one of 130 people who were killed in Paris during an ISIS terrorist attack back in 2015. Now her family is arguing in court that YouTube helped to spread ISIS's violent message because its algorithms suggested extreme content to users based on previous videos that they had watched. And the family wants to sue YouTube, which is owned by Google, for that. But there's one thing that could stand in the way. As you mentioned, it's Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, which says internet companies are not liable for content posted on their platforms by third-party users. Now, that same law has come under fire in Washington and around the country from conservatives who say social media companies are squelching right-wing content, and from liberals who say social media companies are doing the opposite. They're fomenting insurrectionist and extremist right-wing messages. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, he's been 
been critical of Section 230 as well, and it's not clear now how this new 6-3 to three conservative supermajority on the court will impact this case. Any ruling striking down the liability protection could really call into question just the fundamental economics of posting user-generated content at all, which is why a lot of folks in Silicon Valley are going to be watching this one closely, John. And bear in mind, the court is not expected to actually decide the case for months, so there's still a long way to go here before we get to any kind of decision. But this is a court that's been willing to sweep aside precedent and make significant changes to American life so far, John. To say the least, yes. Eamon Javers, thank you. So what is the right move here? What's at stake? Should social media companies be held liable for user content or not? Joining me now to discuss, Michael Smith, professor of information technology and marketing at Carnegie Mellon University. Michael, this seems to be part and parcel of a larger rethinking of the original idea of the open internet. This idea, oh, well, you know, I'll let cookies follow me around and I'll get advertised to, but that means I get all this information for free. And oh, well, you know, sites can post stuff, but that's gonna lead to open debate, which will make society better or not, right? Exactly. Uh, I think one of the things we need to recognize with Section 230 is what we're trying to do is balance the needs of platforms to not be held immediately responsible for what gets posted to their platform and also provide platforms with the proper incentives to police their site against known harmful content. The question is whether we got that balance right in 1996. And um, I think you could make a very good argument that we might want to rebalance that. So what does rebalancing look like, perhaps short of just getting rid of Section 230 altogether? Because if that happens, certain services just won't be able to operate without the risk of massive crippling lawsuits. Yeah, I don't know of anyone seriously suggesting we get rid of uh, Section 230 outright. Uh, I think the question on the table is whether we want to provide stronger incentives for platforms to police their, their sites. Um, the one that I think of um, uh, most is a site like Backpage, which uh, was a site that allowed people to advertise commercial sexual transactions. Um, the Senate investigated Backpage in 2017, and if you read their investigation, I think you come away with the very clear impression that Backpage knew children were being sold for sex on their site. Backpage did almost nothing effectively to stop the sale of children for sex on their site. And the reason they did almost nothing is because they faced no legal liability and selling children for sex was a profitable part of their business. I think we as a society might want to question whether that's whether that's a good idea. Um, for, for sure. Uh, Michael Smith with Carnegie Mellon. Thank you. Up next, Twitter shares still halted for news pending. Sources telling CNBC Elon Musk is now proposing to close the deal at his original price after months of trying to get out of that deal. So why now? Well, we'll try to answer that after this quick break. Welcome back. The deal is on? Maybe. It looks that way at the moment. After much back and forth since his original offer in April, sources telling CNBC, Elon Musk is proposing to close his buyout of Twitter at the original price of $54.20 a share. So why now? Let's bring in Julia Borston for some answers. Julia, what could have saved us a whole lot of trouble by just going through with it in the first place? 
Well, John, today's news comes less than two weeks before the Twitter Musk trial was set to start on the 17th. And the fact that Musk is capitulating now and not even trying to negotiate for a discount speaks to a couple of key factors around timing. First, those texts between Musk and his friends and investors that were, were revealed as part of a document discovery a data dump for the trial not only did Musk indicate in those tweets that he was aware that Twitter had bot issues that he would need to address, but he also didn't seem to be working constructively with Twitter's management, particularly its CEO, Parag Agarwal. Now, second, the whistleblower. While Twitter's whistleblower levied some tough criticisms of Twitter's security, his allegations did not support Musk's issues with Twitter's bots. Plus, this move comes ahead of Musk's deposition that was set for this Thursday and Friday. It seems based on the timing that he didn't want to go through with that part of the legal proceeding. Now, we have reached out to Twitter for comment. We haven't heard back yet, but the Washington Post is reporting that Twitter is considering the proposal but won't act for another day, citing a source that says that because of distrust on both sides, they're questioning whether the letter from Musk could be a legal maneuvering. So, John, who knows what's going to happen next, but uh, certainly, uh, certainly interesting so close to the trial. Yeah, I do not know. I am not one who knows. Let's bring in, thank you, Julia, Casey Newton, editor at Platformer, a CNBC contributor. See if he knows. Uh, Casey, I know you don't know either, but what does this tell us about, because I'm trying to make this investor relevant here, betting on billionaires, because there are people all along this process who were, frankly, tweeting at me, oh, Elon Musk, he's a genius. He's, gonna, he's got this all figured out. He's playing them like a poker hand, and Elon Musk always wins. What happened? Well, look, I mean, you read the discovery for yourself, and what you see is that at almost no part of this process did Elon seem fully engaged with the details, right? We have example after example of Elon trying to renegotiate the deal or even just asking basic questions about it after he had signed a deal to buy the company. So in some ways, it's not surprising that after his lawyers would sit him down and explain what he was about to go through at this trial, that once again, he had a change of heart. I wonder, though, and tell me what you think about this idea. Some of these very smart, very technically capable people have much more to spend than the investors at home, but a lot less to lose. Well, uh, that's exactly right. You know, even if this deal went catastrophically for Elon, you know, he's going to be uh, eating well for the rest of his life. And that's what has always made his acquisition of Twitter a little bit scary, the sense that he wasn't personally invested in how Twitter goes as, say, the average employee or even many of its executives. So that's, um, you know, one reason why I think a lot of folks have been concerned about what might happen if he actually went through with this. Well, uh, as Bravo, our sister network, likes to say, watch what happens. But any impact that you see on Tesla shares going forward? I've been asking people for their perspective on Elon's personal liability if he ends up owning Twitter. You know, I, it's a good question, and I do think we're just going to have to see it play out. I think, you know, Tesla's obviously lost a lot of value this year. Investors have seemed to be a little bit more patient with it than they have been with Twitter. But, I mean, look, as Elon introduces more and more chaos into his finances, there may be a moment when uh, some uh, Tesla uh, investors get fed up. Well, Casey Newton. Welcome back. Rising rates of cooled home sales 
But when it comes to luxury real estate, at least in New York City, the stock market might be having even more of an impact. Robert Frank joins me now to explain. Robert? Hey, John. Well, in Manhattan and the rest of the country, it is the top of the real estate market that is seeing the biggest drops. Sales falling 18% in Manhattan in the third quarter. Prices are still rising with the average apartment now at just under $2 million. But of course, prices do lag sales. And when you look ahead, it's the high end right now that is getting hit the hardest. Signed contracts in September for apartments priced at $4 million or more fell by 50%. Eight-figure apartments that had been selling quickly, well, they're now sitting on the market a lot longer. The supply of luxury apartments up 29% in the quarter. Discounts are now highest for apartments priced at $10 million or more. Now, brokers say sales are simply returning to normal levels, and Manhattan is less sensitive to mortgage rates since half the deals in Manhattan are done in cash. But falling stocks, weak Wall Street bonuses, office vacancies, and the city's impending financial crunch could continue to reduce demand. Now, when you look nationally, sales of luxury homes fell 28% in the quarter. That is the biggest decline, John, since 2012. So right now, unlike the consumer economy, the biggest weakness is at the top of the real estate market. And I wonder, Robert, I imagine luxury real estate is a global market. So how much of an impact does a relatively strong dollar have when probably there are relative bargains to be had in, you know, attractive cities in other countries? That's true. We do hear a lot of Americans going to the UK and Europe because it's attractive there. On the flip side, as you point out, all of the traditional overseas buyers, where you're talking about the Chinese buyers, the European buyers, Latin American buyers, it is a lot more expensive for them to buy, not just because of higher mortgage rates, but because that currency swing is now meaningful, especially when you look at the euro or the pound. Now, if the rich are still spending in the real estate market or in the consumer market in general, but not as much in the real estate market. Is real estate a leading indicator? It's a paradox. You know, on the consumer side, we've talked a lot on air about the high end is the strongest. In real estate, it's the opposite. And I think, you know, we're still seeing strength in arts and collectibles. And I think the wealthy see real estate not as a a form of shelter, but as an interest rate sensitive investment. And just like all interest rate sensitive investments right now, they see a decline up ahead. Robert, thank you. Robert Frank. Meanwhile, Twitter shares still halted at 47.93 on news pending. Elon Musk might be getting ready to buy. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 